Hey everybody, Magnus here. You know, I was just cruising around on Amazon just a while ago trying to get an idea of what all's out there in terms of a, a new MP3 player that basically could at least theoretically replace the 160 gigabyte Apple iPod that I have right now. And it's not because I actually need a replacement, no, no. I just kind of wanted to get an idea, like I say, of, you know, what all's out there. And, you know, like I say, I've got an iPod, 160 gigs, plays videos and MP3s. And it's just really useful to have around. It's sort of like this little portable media center that I can bring around with me. Now, the reason this is kind of important is because Apple has discontinued this. They discontinued it a couple of years back, actually. And so there's quite the aftermarket now put it that way there's quite the aftermarket for these i don't know what these are these are i guess the fifth generation ipods you can ask for and probably get 250 to 350 dollars for these things if you just happen to have have any that are brand new in box never been opened or anything like that you can pretty much ask for and get a shitload of money for these things now I don't think that's as much as they cost back in the old days, but that's what they're going for right now because, like I say, Apple has discontinued it. And the reason they've discontinued it is because it's apparently just that big a pain in the balls to get their hands on the basic parts you need to make this stuff, right? <clears throat> and so that makes it a little bit... Uh, I don't know... Eh, unnerving maybe is the best way to put it because let's face it the law of averages just isn't on your side here you know if this is the kind of ipod that you have sooner or later this thing is probably gonna break right something's gonna happen to it right the battery's gonna crap out the hard drive's gonna crap out the maybe the the device is gonna get run over by a truck who the hell knows right but any number of things can happen, and so it'd be kind of nice to have at least some sort of, I don't know, like a contender, you know? What might possibly replace this iPod if, God forbid, worse comes to worst, right? So, spend some time looking around on Amazon, and dude, it's just fucking depressing. You know, it really is. The stuff that's out there right now is not even competition, in terms of, you know, what an iPod is, what it can do, uh, you know, storage capacities, don't even get me started on that, or the different types of media and whatnot that you can play on there. And, you know, all of these little kinks and bugs and things that Apple long ago worked out of their system, well, these other companies still haven't gotten around to it, you know? And it just fucking pisses me off. I mean, it's once again just like so fucking depressing to me that it's like, this is the state of things these days, you know? And on the one hand, I mean, I get the fact that Apple, they're a business, they're in business to make money. And if they release a bunch of devices that have 160 gig storage capacity, they're probably going to sell fewer devices of those than they would if they release nothing but 16 gig, 32 gig, 64 gig, you know, just stupid fucking retarded bullshit like that. 
And so that's primarily what they release. So if you were to go out right now and start looking around for some kind of Apple device, I don't give a shit what it is, you know, iPad, iPod, iPhone, fucking whatever it is that you're looking at, on the high side, you know, at the absolute most, what you're probably going to find is a device with a storage capacity of 64 gigs. And on the one hand, that's a respectable storage capacity, all right? I'm not trying to minimize that. But on the other hand, number one, it's not that much. And number two, it's not anywhere remotely as much as the 160 gig iPod that I'm holding in my hand right fucking now. So we know that such a thing is possible. We know that they can make this stuff. And so the only logical conclusion that we can draw from that is that they are choosing not to make this stuff. And it just, it fucking pisses me off, guys. It really does. You know, there is absolutely no good reason for this to not exist, okay? I mean, I hate to play the it's the current year card, but guys, fuck's sake, it's 2016. There's no good reason why we shouldn't have non-fucking-retarded MP3 players and media players and all this other stuff that we can... That, that, that we can use that have, you know, fucking, that have decent storage capacity on them, you know? And they just don't seem to fucking exist. Or, if they do, they have problems that you're not likely to find with any Apple products because Apple takes pride in their product, and like I say, they worked a lot of the most obvious kinks out quite a few years ago. So, basically, you're screwed, you know? And so, here we are. Anyway, so that's basically all I got. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. That's what keeps me. That's what keeps me. That's what keeps me
welcome back to Trenis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and not very long ago, I had, I was on a sort of a, a Batman kick. I was reading just shit tons and shit tons of, of uh, Batman comics, and this is just something that I do, right? It, what, what'll happen is my, I call it the fanboy muse, right? It'll take you in certain directions at certain times, and I'm actually starting to think that there's no real rhyme or reason for it. it fucking, it just, it happens, right? And so, when it happens, it's always, it's always just kind of fun to, to play this thing out to whatever the conclusion of it is. And I've done this, I shudder to think, um, I've done a, a ton of reading projects. Um, let me think, there was Animal Man, tons and tons of Superman, obviously. There's been uh, Sinister Six, Daredevil, Green Hornet, Green Lantern, The Flash, Lobo, believe it or not, The Justice Society, The Punisher, specifically The Punisher Max, Ultimate Spider-Man, the Roger Stern run on Amazing Spider-Man, etc., etc. I mean, it, the list just fucking it just goes on and on and on. So none of that is really specifically the point. The point is I went through a Batman kick uh, not all that long ago, and that ended up leading into sort of a, a reading project tangent, and that ended up with me sort of falling ass backwards into a, a Batman subplot that I'm sure a lot of you seasoned Batman fans are probably very well familiar with. This was totally fucking new to me. And so, coming across this subplot pretty much started its own little reading project. And so, anyway, what I'm saying is that these things have a tendency to snowball, right? It just starts off small and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, here we are. So, all of that is a really long way of saying that for people my age, when you say the name Robin, generally what you mean is Tim Drake. It's just, Tim is, for my generation, he is Robin, you know? And I realized that, you know, previous generations, several in fact, it's really Dick Grayson. And my attitude about it, especially when I was a kid, is that, you know, uh, Dick Grayson is fine in his place, but to me, it was Tim that... I'm a, I, I don't want to say that he perfected being Robin, because I don't know if that's totally accurate, but I don't know. He, It's like Tim Drake defined something. I don't know. And it's it, it's kind of hard to put it into words, but for some reason... Dick Grayson was just a little too Burt Ward, I guess. I mean, when you th when when somebody would say the the name Dick Grayson, I would just think Burt Ward, and not even in like a, a a pejorative type of sense either. It's just that when I was growing up, I didn't really read the Titans a whole lot, and so this whole idea of you know, Dick being Nightwing and all this other stuff, you know, having grown up and moved, I guess, into his own future. He defined things, his own life on his own terms. 
that was just that was really outside my wheelhouse, you know? And so because of that, I never had a real perspective on Dick Grayson apart from Burt Ward. Now, some of you are going to be rather upset about that and some of you won't. But nevertheless, that's just that's the hand that I've been dealt. And so to kind of bring it back onto topic though, um when I was going through my Batman reading project, I actually had occasion to come into a completely new appreciation of what Dick Grayson is all about. And what I decided I wanted to do was uh, do a couple of uh, shows about this. Now, I haven't actually gone out there and taken a look, but my guess is that other podcasters have covered these, uh, you know, this same material. And so, you know, because of that, I wanted to be very careful how I did this. I didn't, I wanted, basically I wanted to be, I wanted to go out of my way to avoid listening to what anybody else has uh, said about this. That way I can say hand on heart, I truly am giving you my impressions rather than being, um, shall we say, colored by other people's uh, commentary on all this. So hopefully that all makes sense. Anyway, um, but as it goes for today, or at least this segment, what I want to talk about is Robin, Annual Number 4, published in 1995. Now, for those of you who may not be aware, basically, DC used to do these themed annuals. Basically, you would have this... I wouldn't go so far as to call it a summer event, necessarily, although sometimes it would be. Things like Eclipso, The Darkness Within, or Armageddon 2001, you know, things like that. But generally, DC would have, they went through a phase where they would have these, uh, they, they would have these, I guess, themes for their annuals, right? And so, I guess examples would be, well, year one in this case, but there was also Legends of the Dead Earth, there was Pulp Heroes, and probably some other ones that I'm forgetting, right? And the idea here was that Every, basically every office that was producing any kind of an annual that summer, they would do whatever was necessary in order to fit in with whatever that summer's theme was. And as I say, for 1995, the theme was year one. So you would have to do a story about year one for a given character. And, and honestly... For some reason, I had assumed that what we would get for Robin annual number four would be Tim Drake year one. But then that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because, you know, we readers had already read Tim Drake's first year. Or depending on how you view the passage of time inside of the DC universe, he was still in his first year. So it would have been difficult, maybe impossible to do a year one Tim Drake story. So... I don't know this to be true, but I'm guessing that Chuck Dixon decided he was going to do a Robin Year One story starring Dick Grayson precisly because of what a pain in the balls it's, it'd be to do such a thing for Tim Drake in a way that's different from his ongoing monthly book. So here we are. And that pretty much leads us into, as I say, Robin Annual Number 4, published in 1995. The theme thereof is Year One. The title of the story is... The Flying Graysons, of all things. And so it starts off with the death of... Actually, before I even get into that, 
Writer is Chuck Dixon, penciler is Jason Armstrong, inker is Robert Campanella, colorist is Phil Allen, letterer is Tim Harkins, associate editor is Jordan B. Gorfinkel, and editor is Dennis O'Neill. And the story starts off with the death of uh, Dick Grayson's parents at the Haley Circus. And it's, it's told, as it would be, from Dick's point of view, where... He's basically sitting there, completely helpless, watching his parents plummet to their death. And there's nothing that he can do about it. There's nothing really anybody can do about it. It happened. And the hugeness of him, Dixon's captions here uh, for Dick, it basically goes out of the way, uh, out of its way to emphasize the fact that Dick is completely in shock over this. I mean, the hugeness of all... I mean, he has some perfunctory tears and everything because he feels like he's supposed to. But the hugeness of this hasn't really set in for him. And when you think about it, I mean, that that really does actually ring pretty true because of the fact that, you know, a kid like this... And I don't think, it, I don't think his age is ever specifically mentioned in the story, but you get the idea that he's probably about... I don't know, anywhere from 8, maybe anywhere from 8 to maybe at most 11 years old in this story. And so to lose something, to lose your parents when you're that young, yeah, um, I could see that taking a long time for it to really and truly sink in. And so anyway... Dick ends up, later that night, he ends up getting just a little bit restless. He was honestly afraid to go to, to go to sleep. And that is actually a part of this story that I, again, I find extremely true to life, you know? If you've ever lost a family member or something like that, and I guess like the freshness of it, I mean, I've been there myself. Yeah, I kind of was afraid to go to sleep because of what I might dream about. And so, yeah, this this definitely rang true for me. Now, when I first read this, when I was, let me think, I must have been about, I think I was 14 when this comic had come out. I lived in a little bit of a bubble. Um, my family, we'd never really lost anybody. You know, we had all of our grandparents. We had all of our cousins. Nothing terrible had ever really happened to any of us. And so I was kind of approaching this more as an outsider, but... Time has a funny way of breaking your bubble, I guess, and we've lost family since then. And anyone who's been through that sort of an experience, I'd like to think that this is a very real thing for you. Anyway, so Dick gets just a little bit restless, gets up, starts wandering around the circus grounds. And he ends up overhearing um, a... uh, it's a confrontation. This is uh, Stan, uh, Stan uh, Rutledge and Pop Haley basically having it out in uh, Pop Haley's office. Haley is the uh, circus owner. Rutledge is the circus ringmaster. And so I guess what you could say is th- this is the general manager bucking up to the CEO of the corporation. Maybe that's the best way to put it. And they're basically going back and forth about it. Rutledge's point, and actually what he says is, you know, Dick could have died too. So what are you going to do about that, Pop? And 
uh, Bob, uh, Pop Haley comes back saying, you know, hey, you're blaming me for this? And his answer for that is, who the hell do you think I'm blaming? You're responsible for these people, Pop. And this is actually a very important conversation. We're going to be coming back to this towards the end of the issue. But in the moment, Dick is just... It's like suddenly this thing has hit that much closer to home for him. And he realizes, you know what? That could just as easily have been me. And that is just too much for Dick to deal with. He goes back to his room and... um, he pretty much loses it right there. That's the moment that all of those feelings, all the grief and all the pain and everything, finally caught up with him. And so, anyway. Meanwhile, as all of this is going on, Batman prowls around the Haley Circus uh, campgrounds, I suppose. not really sure what exactly you call that, but he's basically wandering around the place. And he overhears a conversation between... Uh, the juvenile services representative and everybody else in the circus. And it's basically the opinion of the man that Dick is better off in foster care than he is hanging around a circus. And I don't know. I mean, I kind of think that's a little bit up for grabs, to tell you the truth. Um, But Dick doesn't really fight it. He decides he's going to roll with this. He's going into the foster system. But Pop Haley makes a special point of emphasizing to Dick, and he's got tears in his eyes as he says it, makes a special point of emphasizing to Dick that, you know, kid, if you need anything, anything at all, give us a call, and we'll find a way to make sure you get it. And I don't, I've never been to a circus, so I've, I have no idea, but I guess if a kid is raised in a circus, the people that I mean, these are not just his co-workers, I suppose. I mean, this really would be his extended family. So I guess what I'm saying is I buy the the pain of this separation and everything. I mean, Chuck Dixon makes it very real in the story. And he's aided in this case with the art because Dick, he looks sorrowful throughout all of the pages that we've been through up to now. And I'm on page eight here. Um, He looks sorrowful through all of this, but he doesn't look completely helpless. You know, he's in pain, he's mixed up, he's confused, he doesn't know what the fuck's going on, but he's not helpless. And obviously that's going to become important just a little bit later. So, for right now though, Batman watches uh, watches Dick get led away by the juvenile services representative and taken into foster care. And then from there basically Dick finds out exactly how rough your average juvenile youth center really is because he ends up getting jumped by some of the older boys. And Dick does okay. I mean, he's, this is not exactly the first time he's ever been in a fight. But at the same time, he's outnumbered. They've got weapons. And they do this all the time. I mean, yeah, Dick's been in a couple of fights over the years, but... These guys are animals. They do this kind of stuff all the time. So it's a, it's a pretty uh, severe beating that they give to Dick. And uh, he's bleeding. He's all, his face is all fucked up. He's got black eyes. The whole mess. And he decides, you know what? Fuck it. I've had enough. I'm running away, going back to the circus. 
sneaks out at night and ends up getting intercepted by Batman, who says that, in short, people are working on this. People are coming for you. Stay here. Nobody can help you if you're a fugitive, but you're not going to be here for very long. So just stay here. And he says to Dick, he says, trust me. And I guess the hypocrisy of that is, that's not lost on Dick. You know, a guy that doesn't, that's not going to show you his face is asking you to trust him. That's a little bit of a big deal. But in the end, Batman proves to be about as good as his word because the juvenile services representative comes back, picks him up, and basically uh, gives him a, a gentle but stern lecture saying, you know what, dude, you need to get down on your knees and thank God that you found a foster parent this quickly because most kids your age are a royal pain in the ass to place. And so, anyway, from there... Uh, Dick is escorted outside, whereupon he meets Alfred. And standing right beside the... I never even figured out what the hell kind of car this is supposed to be. I mean, I guess it's supposed to be like a Rolls Royce or a Bentley or something. I don't know. But uh, anyway, it'd be a mistake to say, though, that Dick and Alfred get along like gangbusters right from the start. Alfred, he just really doesn't like kids all that much. Or, or maybe it's more that he just, he doesn't really know what to do with himself around kids, you know? Maybe that's it. I don't know. Anyway, so this isn't exactly the uh, reassurance that Dick might have been hoping for. Then they roll up to, to Wayne Manor and they run into uh, Bruce Wayne with his supermodel girlfriend. And this is all enough to confuse the hell right out of Dick. He doesn't understand exactly, I guess, what the fuck is going on here. This is, I mean, this whole type of world is so far outside of Dick's experience. You know, this sort of hard scrabble life that you would assume living, living a, on a, inside of a circus would be. That, you know, this sort of, I don't know, this abject privilege. You know, this is just so completely foreign to everything that Dick's ever known. And again, I mean, the art really sells, you know, Dick's, I guess, amazement in all of this. And at the same time, you also see Bruce Wayne. And it's kind of interesting that Dick is introduced to Bruce Wayne as sort of Bruce the idiot, you know, Bruce the, the, the vapid playboy, you know, the guy that's just, I'm, he's just not there, you know. And so that was Dick's introduction to Bruce, which there's no way that's not going to make some sort of an impression on him. You know, wow, I'm living with this man-child. It's just... Anyway, point is it's, it's very powerful stuff. But I guess the wonder of it all doesn't really last all that long because later on, you see Dick, he's sitting all by himself in his bedroom and he's got tons of toys and video games and on all this other stuff. But end of the day, he's, he feels like, well, actually I'll just read what he says. He says, Bruce Wayne was some billionaire airhead who took me in because he felt sorry for me. I felt like a Christmas puppy. 
at least at the youth center, they didn't pretend they cared about you. And on the one hand, you can't help but feel bad for Dick and all of this, but then that's page 18. You flip over to page 19, and you've got Dick and Bruce sitting there eating dinner together at one of those dinner tables that's extremely long with one person sitting at one end one and somebody else sitting at the other end. And the lighting on the wall with Bruce's chair makes the sort of a, uh, a, a Batman silhouette up against the wall. And it's just a gentle reminder to the reader that no matter how idiotic Bruce may pretend to be, he is still Batman. And I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's one of those little artistic tropes that's followed Batman around for a really long time now that I personally never get sick of. Now, I don't really know when that Batman silhouette was first introduced. I mean, I don't remember uh, seeing it before comics published in the 1970s, but that doesn't really mean anything. So, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, so basically, you've got Bruce and Dick, and they're making the, what they're doing here is just basically making small talk with each other, but they're not really connecting, you know? And so, perhaps because of that, later that night, Dick decides, you know what, to hell with it. Nobody, nobody is really told him what the rules are, or for that matter, if there even are any rules, he decides he's going back to the circus at least to pay a visit. So he, he goes there, and he ends up seeing uh, Pop Haley getting uh, pushed around by some mobsters. And this is kind of... I mean, this is... I, I don't want to say that Dick is being orphaned again, because Pop Haley is just not... Dick's father, but at the same time, he kind of is. You know, he's Dick's other father, or he's Dick's grandfather, or something like that. And so whenever he beats up one of the mobsters, and then, you know, they shoot him to death outside of uh, his office, you know, Dick sees the whole thing and just kind of springs into action. He attacks, and we're talking, we're talking now about three armed adults, okay? Little 10-year-old Dick Grayson swings into action, and... He makes a decent accounting of himself, but at the end of the day, it's a 10-year-old kid fighting three grown men. It's just not going to be a very long fight. And it probably would have been the death of Dick Grayson if, as he put it, as I passed out, I thought I saw a shadow come to life and take out all the hoods, right as we see Batman swing into action and take out three guys at the same fucking time. Which is, needless to say, very impressive. Three guys at the same time. From there, Batman loads Dick up into the Batmobile, and they zip on back to uh, the Batcave. But while Dick's dreaming, or rather, while Dick's on the way there, he, he dreams the, of falling over as a child and getting caught by his mother. He wakes up and finds himself in the Batcave, and... Batman basically just lays down what he has been up to these days. He's been investigating the death of the Graysons, and he suspects that 
the real culprit in all of this is actually somebody by the name of Boss Zuko. But what he needs is proof. He needs enough for him to go to the police and, and, and who can then in turn have the district attorney go for the maximum penalty for something like this. And it's not explicitly stated what that might be, but I can't help thinking that might be the death penalty. Either way. So... Batman's talking to Dick about all of this, and walking up a flight of stairs inside the Batcave as he does so, Dick follows him, and then, out of nowhere, Dick finds himself at the top of the stairs and standing inside of stately Wayne Manor, with Bruce Wayne unmasking himself and revealing that he is, in fact, Batman. So, at that moment, Alfred wanders into the room and sees all of this, and he's something less than happy about the fact that Batman has just revealed his true identity to, guys, let's face it, a kid. And somebody in the plot has got to oppose Dick joining up uh, with Batman. I get that. And it honestly, this is one of those things that it's always made sense to me that Alfred would oppose this. He never wanted this life for Bruce Wayne to begin with. He's certainly not going to want it for anybody else, especially somebody who doesn't necessarily have the benefit of the same training and, um, I guess, raw talent that Bruce Wayne has, the same, the same drive. And so, anyway, it's just, it, it's believable. And I find that this is a pretty common element in a lot of uh, Chuck Dixon's portrayals of Alfred, where Alfred isn't really overtly supportive of any of this. I mean, he rolls with it, and he's cooperative, but he's not... He doesn't endorse any of this. And so, it's... I just find it all very easy to believe. So, anyway, that's page 32. Going back down into the Batcave, though, you've got uh, a Batman basically telling telling Dick that, look, I don't know as, I don't know as you should go so far as to say that you're going to be sworn in as Junior Batman or something. Or, or something like that. But there may be something here that we should talk about. So from there, we uh, flash to uh, Pop Haley's funeral. Dick's there, and he's, for the first time, he's looking around at all of the people that he's, that he's known his whole life, all the people that he's grown up with. For the first time, with a little bit of suspicion that one of these people actually sold Pop Haley out to the mob. And so we look around, and, and we're basically presented with uh, seven suspects. And so I don't want to name every single fucking one of them, but I also don't want to identify the guilty party just yet either, although in a weird kind of way I already have. But in any case, if you haven't already put handcuffs on the person who's responsible yet, just sit tight. It'll be coming along uh, before you know it. Anyway, so Dick manages to catch up at least a little bit with some of his friends from the circus before uh, getting back in the car with Alfred and going back home. Meanwhile, back at the, at the Batcave, you've got Dick, who's training on Batman's equipment, doing flips and uh, working the Olympic rings, flipping around on the, I don't, I don't even know what you call them, the uneven bars, I guess. And all of this while Batman's watching. And this, you know, there's this moment where uh, 
Batman says, I can see there's a few moves you could teach me. And this was, as weird as it may sound, this is one of the first time, one of the first times that I came to understand what it was that Dick Grayson specifically was bringing to the table that, number one, Batman had never had before, but number two, no other Robin could really hope to give. There are things that Dick can do that Batman just can't. I'm not saying that Batman's not good at what he does, but Dick is an acrobat. I mean, that guy's got moves. He's trained his whole life for this. This is the only life he's ever known. And he's going to have... There are, there are going to be certain things that Dick can do that fundamentally Batman just can't. And now maybe Batman could train for it at some point. But you get the idea, Batman will never quite be on Dick's level. And that's an interesting thing to think about in this time and age in which we live where Batman has to be the best there is at everything that he does. Back in 1995, it was okay for Batman to not be good at something, you know? And... This was, like I say, this was the first time that I kind of came to understand what it was that Dick Grayson was bringing to the table that was completely new and foreign to Batman's experiences, I guess is what I'm saying. So, anyway, from there, Batman basically breaks it down how it works between him and the Gotham City Police Department. Specifically, it's not that they license his activities, they just look the other way when they see Batman in action. So from there, Dick decides to kind of, that he wants to go for broke on all of this and say that, you know what? I was only kidding around before about the whole junior Batman thing, but you know what? I think I want to do that. Batman kind of puts the brakes on that a little bit and says, we need to take one step at a time here. We need to be serious about this. And if you're serious about becoming my partner, then you're going to have to learn to take better care of yourself. Because realistically, the last thing that Batman needs out there is a liability. So anyway, from there, Dick begins his training regime where he learns, he becomes a better acrobat, but he also learns combat training uh, and other, basically other disciplines that he knows nothing about all the while studying under Alfred and doing, uh, I guess, homeschooling. And so it's a pretty, pretty much an ass-kicking regime that, that Dick has been going through here. And all throughout, Dick has been struggling coming to, to come up with a secret identity for himself because he's trying to find a way to, be, to continue the sort of bat motif that Bruce created. And what he eventually realized, and again, this is crucial, this is key to my understanding of you know who Dick Grayson is he he decided he's going to be something else does that make sense he's not going to be bat boy he's going to be his own person and i hadn't really thought about it before that you know what robin is not batman's creation robin is dick grayson's creation and again, I mean, I was very, I mean, Tim Drake was the only real Robin that I'd ever known in my collecting life up to then. So I hadn't really 
stop to think about, you know, what exactly is the origin of Robin as an identity? And we get it here. Dick Grayson created Robin. Now, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. I guess what I'm, I guess what I'd always assumed was that Robin had been a creation of Batman. This was something that Batman had given to him. But that's not actually the case. Batman gave Dick the tools that he needs to do the job, but ultimately, Dick had to create his own identity. And again, I mean, for something, I mean, that is so crucial to who Dick is as a character that, you know, how I didn't already figure this out for myself, I don't know. But for some reason, I just didn't. Anyway, so that's page 40. Flipping over to page 41, we see Dick Grayson's debut as Robin as he and Batman swing through Gotham City. From there, we get sort of a montage of, of Batman and Robin taking on the Riddler, Batman and Robin taking on Poison Ivy, and then the Joker, and then Two-Face. And as far as Two-Face is concerned, guys, uh, keep your ears open. I'll be coming back to that in just a little while. There's an intentional... Basically, Chuck Dixon is intentionally keeping something open here with the timeline. And so we'll come back to that momentarily. Anyway, so overall, though, Dick is having the time of his life as Batman's new partner. This is... Obviously, this is not the life he would have chosen for himself, but he's still fundamentally good at what he does. So, anyway, on page... This is page 44. Dick... Well, actually, at this point now, it's, it's Batman and Robin. Swing into action against Tony Zuko and his thugs. And Batman and Robin make pretty short work of him, too. Uh, Dick, he decides that, you know, he can't fight a full-grown adult one-on-one, man-to-man, toe-to-toe. You know, he can't do that. So instead, what he has to do is use his, um, his, his acrobatics, use his training as a gymnast, Use that stuff to his advantage. Use it in a way that will let him win the fight. And indeed, that's what he does. And again, this is, this is, it kind of goes to, I guess, Batman as a character. You know, why would he take a, a minor? Uh, why would he take a minor out into, uh, into battle with him against, let's face it, armed criminals you know because when you think about how dangerous that is that's freaking dangerous but dick in ways that maybe other children couldn't dick can take care of himself batman doesn't have to worry about him as much and that's proven right here anyway so you've got this moment where batman manages to coerce the truth manages to coerce a confession out of uh, Boss Zuko. And he pretty much fingers who his inside man was at Holy... Uh, at a, not Holy Circus. Haley's Circus. Haley's Circus. So... Of all people, I think Batman would understand Robin's decision to take this on by himself. So, 
it's about a year to the day since uh, the Graysons have died. Robin goes to the circus grounds, and in that moment, he remembers the conversation he overheard between Pop Haley and Mr. Rutledge. When he thinks back on it, what he, what he remembers is Rutledge uh, saying, it's a tragedy enough that the Graysons died, but it could have been the boy. Dick could have died too. What are you going to do about that, Pop? And what Dick realizes is, Haley and Rutledge were not just having it out. Rutledge was threatening Haley. He was letting him know, hey, it could have been the boy. Dick could have died too. Dick completely misunderstood what it was that he heard. He thought that, well, anyway. So from there, Robin confronts Rutledge. They, they fight just a little bit. And it's in that moment that Rutledge recognizes the fact that it's Dick Grayson under the mask. He opens fire on him and uh, tries to retreat. Ends up falling into uh, the tiger's cage, though. And they make pretty short work of him. So, later at the Batcave, Dick is talking to Batman, saying he, he'd assumed that he'd feel better, knowing that, you know, that if Rutledge had died, Dick had assumed that he'd just feel better about this. But he doesn't. He doesn't feel any different at all. And Bruce says that finding your parents' killers is something you had to do for them, not himself. It doesn't really change anything. Justice is not a reward, and nothing can take away the pain. And of all people, yeah, Batman is going to know all about that. And so, and that brings us to the last page of, of uh, this annual. Robin asks Batman if he's got the job for good. And Batman says, yes, it's his if he wants it. And then from there... Alfred gives a little bit of commentary on who exactly he is, who exactly it is that he thinks Batman is as a character. Alfred says, you've proven yourself a most apt pupil, Master Dick, and Master Bruce seems to have a high opinion of your talents as a costumed adventurer. But Master Bruce has very few real friends. And while he most certainly became a man, I don't think he ever became an adult. And this is in response to Robin wondering aloud why it is that Batman would take on a kid as a partner. And that's really Alfred's best answer to it. So, anyway, my point is this, and that's the end of the story. My point in this, though, is to say that this story was really my first opportunity to take a look back at Dick Grayson, I guess, with a fresh appreciation. What is it about Dick Grayson that Jason Todd didn't bring to the table? And I would say even Tim Drake didn't bring to the table. And we get it, either explicit or implicit, we get it here. But I think the very last page of the issue... When you, get, when you move away from the fact that, you know what, Dick Grayson can do things that Batman, as good, as good as he might be, there are things that Dick can do that Batman just can't. The other thing, though, is that Alfred said that there's a degree to which Bruce Wayne is a child trapped inside of, a, of an adult's body. 
yeah, he's a man, but he's not completely an adult. So why would Batman choose Dick as his partner? I think what it comes down to is not just seeing commonality in Dick's story, although obviously there's that. It would not be hard for, for Bruce to empathize with Dick's situation. I don't think... I don't think that Batman regards Dick as his son. I think he regards him more as his brother. Dick looks up to Bruce as a father figure. Maybe in ways that his real father just wasn't. I don't think that's the way Bruce views the situation. I think that Batman thinks of it that he and Dick are brothers. He, I think Bruce has always wanted a little brother. And I think he feels like he's found one with Dick Grayson. So, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong about all of that, but that's just the angle that I'm coming from. So, now, again, in case you guys missed it, this was Robin, annual number four, and the theme for the uh, DC annuals this summer was year one. This came out in 1995, and when you think about it, there is a marketing aspect to this of having a... Uh, Dick Grayson year one story because this is the same summer during which Batman Forever came out and that you know Batman Forever that's a very different version of Dick Grayson than what we're seeing here but it's still Dick Grayson and I don't think that was lost on DC but what I do find interesting is that Chuck Dixon he goes he doesn't I mean he goes out of his way to make sure this doesn't feel like an obligatory movie tie-in and you know I, I i really appreciate that so this whole story it just felt organic to who bruce is it felt it established who dick grayson is very possibly for the first time in the post-crisis continuity and it also gave us just a really fun and honestly very emotional robin story and at the end of the day i can't find any fault with that so that is pretty much that. Now, for right now, I'm going to uh, just take a break and I'll be right back after these messages. do the promo now really finally okay let's do the promo what do you mean let's do the promo i'm the one who has to do it well get on with it then okay okay here we go 
Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... Fa- <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff! Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you! Okay, doing the new promo. Do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please, call me Dave. I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at 2TrueFreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at 2TrueFreaks.com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got another, I've got another comic book here that I want to talk about. This is The Batman Chronicles, The Gauntlet, by Bruce Canwell and Lee Weeks with Matt Hollingsworth. At least those are the cover credits. The actual, like the official credits, though, are a story by Bruce Canwell, art by Lee Weeks, 
coloring by Matt Hollingsworth, lettered by Albert de Guzman. And the, I guess the sort of down and dirty summary of it all is... Dick Grayson's been training for a very long time, and Batman's giving him a final exam before he's allowed to go out on patrol as Robin. That is to say, Batman's partner. The challenge is that uh, he'll be given a six-hour head start at dusk, and then Batman will hunt him down and try to find him within city limits. If he can make it until sunrise without being caught, he passes. Dick ventures out in Gotham City dressed as Robin for the very first time and quickly finds himself embroiled in a criminal plot that he must stop while also evading his mentor and many gangsters all across the city under the command of Joe Manette. Batman catches up to Robin and is content to watch him from the shadows and observe the way he handles taking down a syndicate of Gotham organized crime and in so doing surpassing all expectations. Robin takes down a crime lord, again, Joe Manette, by recovering crucial evidence, and Batman tells him that he's passed the test, and then introduces him as Robin, his partner, to Captain Gordon. So, this may seem to be a little bit of discontinuity with Robin, annual number four that I talked about in the last segment, but not really. You see... Robin Annual number four took place over the course of a year. And honestly, we only really saw the beginning and the end of that year. Pretty much the mathematical majority of it. We didn't we only got like the very briefest of, of glances at. The uh, altercation with Two-Face, with Riddler, with Poison Ivy. But we didn't really see too much of Robin's first year. We basically just saw the bookends. So, there is plenty of room for this story to have taken place. As a matter of fact, Robin, annual number four, I don't even know how canon that is. Like, officially, how canon that is. And I don't mean this in the sense of, you know, New 52 bullshit, although there's that. But I mean, uh, pre-Flashpoint, I think Batman Dark Victory had come to be the official Dick Grayson origin story as to how he became Robin. Now, I guess my view of that is we're getting into territory now where we're discussing what I consider to be my, as Emily Middleton would put it, this is my headcanon, right? I don't know who truly originated that term, but the first time I heard it, was from Emily. So she's the one that I'm going to give the hat tip to there. And basically, headcanon, it should pretty well define itself, I would think. But basically, this is... These are the stories regarding a character that are in your personal continuity. You know, this is my continuity of who these characters are. And yeah, there are going to be some, you know, imperfections and some inconsistencies because, again, this is... You know, this this isn't stuff that I've created, and these are things that maybe weren't necessarily intended to go together. Nevertheless, this is the this is the story as I like seeing it done in comics. So, this is my headcanon. So, is the, so I guess my point is, whether or not Robin Annual Number Four truly is canon, 
or was canon anymore before Jeff Johns uh, pissed all over that iteration of the DC universe. I don't really care. That's my canon, and that's the only thing that I'm really concerned about. So on that basis, it may seem like a strange thing to go from Robin Annual number four to the gauntlet when I think the official canon is Dark Victory to the gauntlet. The problem is I just don't give a shit. So, you know, I guess if that bothers you, you're welcome to turn off my podcast. So anyway, as it goes for the gauntlet, though, this is a... I just I, first off, let me just start off by saying that I seriously friggin' dig the art. I mean, I've never been the world's biggest Lee Weeks fan in the entire world, but he he has this in certain not not on every single page you understand, but just every now and then you can see a little bit of a John Romita Jr. influence, or maybe it's a Frank Miller influence. I don't know, but. All you get is just a very quick flavor of it. You don't, it doesn't feel like he's trying to copy Frank Miller or John Romita Jr., you know? Other places, you get uh, Batman Year One era, David Masicelli. And again, you only really get sort of hints of it. You only get like a little, just a, just a little sample. It doesn't feel like Lee Weeks is trying to copy those styles. You can just see that there's a clear influence at play, especially on page one. Um, panel three, you see a close-up of... Um, this is a... Uh, it's a close-up. I think the, the character's name is Del Kane, And he's holding a cigar, and he's got this sort of scribbly, scratchy uh, shadow uh, across his face. And it just seems very John Romita Jr. to me. You know, I don't know what it is, but there's something about this that just seems like something J.R. Jr. would have done. So there's that to think about. But in the panel immediately preceding that, which is to say page one, panel two, you can see these, um, these mobsters sort of facing the camera, and I'm using that in quotation marks, but they're facing the camera. And Carlton Tate, uh, he's sort of pushed down on his knees. He's kind of kneeling on the ground. And he's pretty much begging for his life is really what it, what it comes down to. He and the mobsters that are standing behind him, they look like they could have been drawn by David Mazzuccelli. And, again, I don't mean that in, uh, as a slam. It's just that you can see a, a pretty clear David Mazzuccelli influence there, but it's not like he's trying to copy David Mazzuccelli. So I'm hoping that all makes sense. So, anyway. All of this is a, is a sort of long way of saying that I just really dig the art. It's extremely moody and atmospheric. You know, these are... I guess you could think of it as this is sort of the last gasp of what's left of organized crime in Gotham City. It's pretty much on its last legs at this point. Between Batman and the, the rest of, I guess, Batman's rogues gallery, the costumed supervillains of Gotham City, there's just not much left of organized crime anymore. So, then from there you flip over to, uh, to page two, and it's basically Batman swinging into action to kick everybody's ass. And he's got these flash bombs that he's setting off all around him to stun and blind uh, the mobsters and everything. And again, it's just, I really dig this art, but I also dig Batman's outfit, because I'm, I'm one of those people who thinks that However much credit you want to give Bob Kane as Batman's co-creator, Bob Kane nevertheless drew, I think, 
a gray and black Batman outfit. Possibly all black, but certainly gray and black. And so quite how Batman's outfit came to be gray and blue, I can only assume that somebody took the blue highlights that were colored in on Batman's cape and other parts of his outfit. They took that a little bit too literally. So... For decades, Batman had this gray and blue outfit, and I don't really understand that. You know, I don't understand how that's really Bat-like at all, but whatever. So, but you don't get that here. At least on this page, this is a Batman with a with a gray and black outfit the way that I like it. And it's just... I just, I, I really enjoy this. I, I just, I also enjoy this pose that he's doing. It's like he, it's almost like he's flying through the air. And it just looks very Chris Nolan to me. And, and I mean that in a positive sense. I mean, I know I'm kind of on the record not being the world's foremost Chris Nolan fan, at least as far as Batman's concerned. But that whole visual of Batman, I guess, in flight, it just seems very Chris Nolan to me. And it, that's something I actually, I think he did really, really well. So, anyway. To move right along onto uh, page three, Batman pretty much kicks the shit out of all of the gangsters and everything, and it, it actually goes on for a couple of pages of him just beating everybody's ass before he goes back to the Batcave, and he just kind of shoots the bull with Dick for a while before throwing down the gauntlet, and sa so to speak, and saying, you know, you're up now to your final exam. I'm going to give you a couple more weeks to practice, but... You know, you're you're facing now your your final exam, and at the same time that all that's going on, Batman's going to start making his play toward Joe Manette. Basically, the I guess I don't know as I'd go so far as to say the last major crime boss of the old guard in Gotham City, but certainly he's one of a dying breed, and so that's going to be sort of Batman's move over over the next couple of weeks, and then from there we actually flash forward to the Fourth of July weekend, where it's t it's finally time now for Robin to go on, well, the gauntlet, you know, basically to face his final exam and try to, you know, avoid Batman for an entire, an entire night. He gets dropped off in the, just the crummiest fucking slum of a, of a ghetto that I've ever seen by Alfred. And full Robin gear, you understand. Then he, then Alfred drives off and from there we cut back to Wayne Manor and it's, I don't, I don't know as I'd go so far as to say it's Alfred having it out with Bruce, but there is a degree to which this era of Alfred, I wouldn't go so far as to say that he was opposed to, to the idea of Batman or Batman and Robin or any of that, but he really wasn't completely on board. You know, the, this was something that... He just thought it was an, an unnecessary risk. And let's face it, it's a fucking insane thing to do in real life. You know, if you actually do something like this, you're a fucking nut job. You know, simple as that. So, uh, and that's, uh, that's where quite a bit of Alfred's disapproval comes from. And this is so of a piece with Alfred's portrayal up to then that it's kind of interesting to think that this was a little bit of a change from Alfred as he'd been portrayed I don't know, through a good bit of the the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and even a tiny little bit of the 90s. You know, this was not... Basically what I'm saying is this this type of characterization for Alfred was a, a little bit of a new thing when you really think about it. So, whatever you think that's worth. So, 
Definitely some differences of opinion there. You cut back to Crime Alley, where Robin is basically jumping from rooftop to rooftop, and he accidentally uh, intercepts some of uh, the Joe Manette gang, beating the shit out of who we later, somebody that we later find out is, I'm not exactly sure what to call it, a double agent, but he's basically playing everybody against everybody else, and it, it's not like this is a secret, so of course he's getting the shit beat out of him for it. So Robin swings into action, and right here on page 12, it's just a sort of glory shot of Robin hopping off the fire escape, I guess. I mean, because there really is no background, so it's hard to put this into any type of reference. But he'd been standing on a fire escape before that moment, so you know, I'm just reading between the lines here, so to speak. And th this issue has quite a few of these, uh, of these sort of money shots <clears throat> of Batman or Robin or both swinging around doing their thing. And this, again, this is just not the caliber of work that I associate with Lee Weeks. I don't mean that to be disrespectful. I'm just saying I've never been a huge Lee Weeks fan. I, for, there's just something about his art that's never really impressed me. But on every single page of this comic, you talk about bringing home the bacon. So anyway, to get back into it. So you've got Robin hopping off the fire escape, swinging into action. And after all of this time, all this training, it's kind of hard to guess how old Robin is by this point. You could say anywhere from 12 to 14. I don't really know. But the amount of training that he's, that, that he's been through up to this point and his sort of, I guess, his combat style, it's, it, it makes it believable that he can hang with armed adults, you know, full grown-ups, right? Especially since they don't seem to have any guns. They've only got a, you know, between the three of them, they've only got one knife. Plus... Robin is not actually their target, and so that helps too. And when you think about it, I mean, there's really no way that a 13, 14-year-old kid, a little boy, is going to be able to, to hang with full-grown adults. I mean, he may have him beat for endurance. That I could easily see. But as far as just raw strength and firepower, there's just no way, you know? And... On this page, though, and, and really I would say all throughout this issue, it's actually very believable because of the tactics that Dick Grayson uses whenever he's doing his thing as Robin. So it's just something that I really appreciate on this page, you know, in this sequence here, but really all throughout, all throughout this issue. So anyway, so Terra Nova ends up getting stabbed, and as he's laying there just sort of bleeding out, Robin calls the police while Terranova gives him a deck of playing cards. And what do you want to bet that this deck of playing cards is going to end up being extremely, extremely important, you know? So, anyway. From there, the cops arrive. They rescue uh, Terranova. I guess put him in protective custody. Word gets around that he's still alive. And on top of all of that, word gets around that he's passed on damning evidence against Joe Manette onto Robin. So now Robin is an official target in all of this, and at this point, I think it would be fair to say that the gauntlet as a story is in full swing. So, later that night, Batman meets up with Gordon on the roof of uh, police headquarters. They pretty much exposit the precise same information that I've just given to you guys, and then from there, Batman's off to multitask. 
he's, as much as anything, trying to catch up to Robin because that's the exam. If Batman can find Robin before sunrise, he's failed the exam. But now Batman's trying to catch up with Robin for his own safety because it's now known that Robin is an official target in all of this. So his first stop is at uh, Leslie Tompkins' clinic where he finds Robin's clue. And the idea here is that as we as Batman goes to each new stop, Robin's leaving him fresh clues. The idea is that he'll run them all over Gotham and sort of just run down the clock and pretty much just waste Batman's time, ultimately is what we're talking about here. So from there, uh, Robin is hanging around a, a, a movie theater, and he's basically congratulating himself on leading Batman on a pointless wild goose chase. Elsewhere, Batman finds another of Robin's clues, this one to point him somewhere else, and so on and so on. But Batman doesn't go straight to uh, his next destination. He swings by uh, Manette's uh, penthouse, where he uh, beats the shit out of Manette's goons, and then basically threatens uh, Manette with severe bodily harm if he doesn't leave Robin the hell alone. Which doesn't exactly work, because at this point, Manette decides it's time to bring down the Hammer of God on Robin, and he calls in pretty much every single one of his soldiers that, uh, that he's got on his payroll. And so, originally this was, a, this was a problem, this was something that needed to be taken care of. Now we're talking about a full-scale fucking war here. And so, as all of that's going on, Robin gets intercepted at the, th- at, at, uh, the theater by one of Manette's goons. He, uh, actually a couple of Manette's well, actually, it's not really clear from the art if this is one of Manette's goons or or a few, but whatever. One for sure. So, again, this is... It's believable here that Robin could get... You know, a 14-year-old kid could get the drop on a, on a full-grown man because of the tactics that he uses and, and, and just the way he uses his surroundings to his advantage. He drops a smoke bomb and drops uh, some mannequins uh, from the rafters, and they all swarm around and swoop on, uh, on, on the gangster here. And they basically draw his, draw his fire while Robin swings into action and takes him from behind. And um, takes him down pretty hard, too. Like, it looks like he got kicked right in the face. And uh, I've never really been kicked in the face, but I'm guessing it doesn't tickle. So... From there, Robin tries to make his escape outside, but now he gets ambushed by more soldiers and is basically forced to uh, leap off a bridge and, and hide in the rafters underneath the bridge, but he can't even get any relief there because now he gets intercepted by a fucking military helicopter. So, yeah, it'd be safe to say that Robin's had, uh, he's had better days. So, anyway, um, anyway, from there, we cut to Batman intercepting some more Manette goons in the Batmobile, and he ends up having to force them off the road. Meanwhile, other Manette goons have pursued Robin into the sewers, and uh, he's forced to take uh, to take them down. And Robin allows himself to get cornered and then captured. From there, uh, let's see. From there, we cut to uh, Del Kane sitting around outside a... Uh, I'm not even sure what exactly this thing is even... It looks like it's supposed to be a uh, shipping center on the waterfront. So fuck it, that's what I'm going to call it. It's a warehouse on the waterfront. That'll work. So here we see 
Del Kane is on. Uh, he's doing guard duty there, while others of uh, of uh, Manette's men have, they think, captured and then Im- and tied up Robin. They've basically immobilized him uh, with different types of cords, bowstrings, and other things that that are designed to keep him down. And Batman realizes it took Robin every last bit of 90 seconds to escape their pathetic little trap. And so from there, Robin has to take out all of these full-grown adults one by one by one. Now, in the process of doing so, he he nooses one of the uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, mafia thugs here, slaps a noose around his neck, but he does it in a way that's basically going to immobilize the gangster, but not kill him. Now, keep in mind, Batman is watching this whole thing. He's caught up with Robin now, and he's got a pretty good idea of what's going on here, and he notices that that goon can hang right where he is for hours without any kind of danger of strangulation. And it's in this moment Batman realizes, he says to himself, Robin's going to be a very good soldier. A very good soldier. From there, Del Kane uh, bursts into the warehouse to see just what in the hell is going on. Robin doesn't even know that Batman's there, so as far as he knows... His hand has just been forced. He's got to rush Del Kane, who's firing off his gun at random. And then, again, you've got a situation where a 14-year-old kid gets the drop on a full-grown adult. But it you buy it here because of the fact that Robin caught him by surprise. You know, It's not like they squared off toe-to-toe, and uh, Robin was just, in comic book logic, he was somehow able to overpower a, 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 an adult. It's actually totally believable here that he could get the drop on Del Kane like this because he, he causes a distraction and then swoops on swoops in on him from the other side. And then he, uh, I can't even say sucker punches, but he sucker kicks him. And again, he's not placing himself at unnecessary risk. He's basically just using the element of surprise and his surroundings to his best advantage. And anyway, so from there, um, you know, the fight continues and... Del Kane rushes Robin, who grabs him by the shirt and then flips him over uh, using his feet, just flips him over behind him, and then he smacks his head up against a wooden pillar. And so that's pretty much it. Del Kane's down and out for at least a little while. So Robin, once again, tries to make his escape, but he gets cornered by more mafia thugs. And again, he's he's outnumbered, he's outgunned, he doesn't really have any kind of way to face them head-on. In fact, these aren't even just thugs, actually. One of these is actually Joe Manette himself, so uh, we're actually working our way up the food chain here. So, But Robin, he doesn't really have the option of taking these guys on directly because they've got guns. He's got really very few places to hide. doesn't have the element of surprise, and so he has no choice but to retreat. And I just, I buy it, you know, uh... This is a realistic way for anybody to fight this kind of fight. You know, the best fight that you can possibly fight is your fight. If you have to fight somebody else's fight, you're going to lose. Robin knows that, and so he, he decides to fall back and retreat and find a way to fight his fight. But the fact is, I mean, he's running out of places to hide. I mean, at this point, he's been chased onto one of the barges, and the, uh, the mafia thugs have followed him there. 
And then come to find out, this isn't just any barge. This is a barge loaded up with firecrackers. And unfortunately, Robin just, he had nowhere else that he could hide. This was it. So naturally, the firefight that ensues ends up setting off the uh, firecrackers that are uh, stored on the barge while Robin's just trying like hell to find a place to hide. And then he basically runs out of options. Minette gets the drop on him, and then this is pretty much it. <sighs> Robin doesn't find some kind of miraculous way to beat the hell out of, again, out of a full-grown man. This is the one time that Batman makes his presence known. He stands behind Robin, where only Joe Minette can see him, and that is more than enough to distract Minette so that Robin can get the drop on him, take his gun away, throw him off the boat, and that's pretty much it. You know, they call the cops, Manette gets arrested, and, you know, that's pretty much that. And all throughout, I mean, you know, Batman's point in this is that, you know, all throughout, Robin's managed to stay alive, which, considering the fact that he was the target of the, of the entire Manette crime organization... That really says a lot about his abilities, and I guess his intelligence, his his ability to to improvise, right? But Batman's got a couple of criticisms for him, namely that he held on to police evidence all night. That honestly, this whole thing could have gotten wrapped up sooner. Gordon could have put out an APB against Minette and all of his thugs if Robin had just handed over the the deck of cards from the get-go, and as true as that might be, it's it basically it, it allows Batman to basically to allow Dick to still be his partner, to still pass the test, even though it technically wasn't Sunrise. And I don't know. It's just I really like this. It this is just just it's just a fun story. It doesn't and and like I say, in terms of my personal headcanon, this is a Dick Grayson's official first night as Robin. This is how that played out. And it's a hell of a good start. And now I might have actually liked it if Dick had gone you know, head-to-head with a real costumed supervillain. But, you know, there'll be plenty of stories for that sort of thing. So, I don't know. Overall, this is, this is just a, a ton of fun. Really enjoyed uh, this, this, uh, this issue. I'm, and I got to tell you, you know, I mean, I'm really not a huge... Batman Chronicles fan because it felt like that book which was a quarterly book it got off to such a good start and then just out of friggin nowhere it got dragged into all that no man's land bullshit and I know that some of you listening to this are probably really big no man's land fans and you know what that's great not trying to take anything away from me on that but I mean at the same time I've just I guess I'm not a, uh, a story like, or at least a title like this begs to sort of have its own, its own sort of place, I guess, in the Batman universe, you know, where it doesn't have to tie into the latest fucking crossover that's going on, you know, where, because I got, I got to be honest, you know, there was a point in the nineties when all I really wanted to do was read a Batman title that didn't relate to some fucking crossover or another and that and that got harder and harder and harder to do as the 90s went along you know 
there was a point when you had the Batman Adventures and then Legends of the Dark Knight. And to some degree, I guess, Shadow of the Bat, but then Shadow of the Bat got dragged into all the fucking crossovers. But, you know what, at least you still had uh, the Batman Adventures and Legends of the Dark Knight, except then Legends of the Dark Knight kind of poked a toe once in a while into those crossovers. Specifically, I think, uh, Night, uh, Night Quest and at least a couple of chapters of Night's End. And, I don't know, it's... Whatever. It. The point is, I just, I never saw the point of dragging the Batman Chronicles into all that No Man's Land bullshit. So, whatever. I mean, it's not worth losing your temper over. I'm, I'm just saying I, I just could have done without. And all of that is completely not the point. The point is, the Gauntlet is, is, it's just a fun little story, and it's, and it's strange that there is this. This truly is canon. As far as I know, uh, in the pre-Flashpoint universe, this was Dick Grayson's first official night as Robin. So, um, I guess my head canon and the actual canon do overlap here, even if they don't with Robin Annual Number 4. But either way, this is just a fun story. And the, I guess the thing that I like about it the most is the fact that you buy the fact that Batman would choose this kid to be his partner. He, I mean, he truly is capable, you know, and you can also see then why Batman's gonna forever be open to the possibility of a teenage sidekick precisely because of the impression that Dick Grayson made, and so, I don't know, all around, fun issue, and uh, probably I ought to stop rambling now, I'll be right back after these messages. I've got just one more thing that I want to talk about before I finish up for this week. This is a mini-series called Robin Year One, and I guess as far as continuity is concerned, this sort of... The, the, the stories that I've talked about up to now, which is to say Robin Annual Number 4 and The Gauntlet, they both take place sort of in tandem with each other. They also take place between panels on this uh, uh, this miniseries, or maybe between issues in this miniseries. And so, because of that, it's there's really no way to, I guess, talk about all three of these things in a nice, neat, organized type of way, simply because you'd be jumping all over the place. So that's why I'm, I'm tackling all of them sort of separately from one another. So that's really my, uh, my reasons for doing so. Now, as to the creative team, the writers um, for this uh, for this miniseries, Robin Year One, 
They are Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty. Penciler is Javier Polito. Inker is Robert Campanella. Letterer is Sam Connaught. Colorist is Lee Loffridge. And I got to tell you, this is... I mean, I realized that... that um, the Gauntlet wasn't actually written by Chuck Dixon, but it's interesting to me, nevertheless, how neatly the Gauntlet fits in with uh, basically Chuck Dixon's uh, various ideas and whatnot. And we're going to be coming back to that in a lot more detail in just a few moments, but it's important to remember that the, I guess this, this iteration of uh, Dick Grayson as Robin if you wanted to call Chuck Dixon the sort of creative mastermind of Dick Grayson's destiny, his origin story and all that stuff during this vintage of, uh, you know, comics, I think you'd have a very solid leg to stand on. There's really no separating Chuck Dixon's contributions from Dick Grayson-era Robin stories that we were getting in the mainstream continuity at this time in in the 90s. It's just, he's sort of the founder of the feast in a lot of ways. Now, I think in subsequent years he'd end up getting sort of replaced by Jeff Loeb with a Dark Victory. But, I don't know. I'm just not as solid on Dark Victory as, as some other people are. So, And that's not a slam on Dark Victory. Obviously, I enjoyed that story. But as far as, I guess, Dick Grayson origin stories. You know, how did he become... Uh, Bruce Wayne's ward. How did he become Robin? What was his training like? Etc. Etc. I'm sorry. To me, Chuck Dixon is the one with those answers, not Jeff Loeb. But anyway, to uh, to get into the the summaries properly, the story recounts the beginning of Dick Grayson's career as Robin, the Boy Wonder, as Batman trains him in crime fighting against the judgment of Alfred. Robin proves to be a capable ally when he foils the Mad Hatter's plot to abduct and sell children into slavery. The story begins when the Mad Hatter is hired by Sing Mon Lee, the president of Relasia, to kidnap ten American girls for Lee's personal sex trafficking purposes. Batman and Robin are informed of the disappearance of eight girls by Captain Gordon and begin searching Gotham City for clues. After encountering difficulties in their search, Robin identifies one of the missing girls as Jennifer, a school acquaintance. While searching, for his, searching his school for leads at Batman's request, Robin discovers that the Mad Hatter is behind the kidnappings. Because Batman's aboard President Lee's yacht as Bruce Wayne, Robin decides to foil the Hatter's plot all by himself. Although Robin's efforts lead, a, lead to the arrest of the Mad Hatter, the exploitation of President Lee, and the rescue of the captive girls, Batman's ten different kinds of pissed off that Robin didn't wait for his permission and his assistance. Before Batman can reprimand Robin for it, though, Alfred intervenes and, and convinces him to, con to commend his squire for a job well done. As Dick aids Bruce in his war on crime, Alfred fears that the boy may not be able to balance a normal teenage life over and against his life of crime fighting. And that, I think, is going to be a, I mean, that is na the, the natural end of the first issue. And so, I guess because of that, you know, now's probably going to be a good time to just put this whole shit on pause and talk about goings-on in the first issue. And 
Javier Polito, he's got this this style that sort of reminds me of of Darwin Cook. I mean, you wouldn't exactly... I don't think it would be fair to call Polito a, a clone of Darwin Cook, but you can't really dismiss the similarities either. So there's that to talk about. Now, the issue, the, the, uh, issue actually starts off with uh, Joe Manette from uh, The Gauntlet. He's in police custody, and he's uh, basically having visiting time with... At this point, it's not... He's a low-level enforcer, sort of the consigliere of... Basically, it's somebody that we, we just can't see his face. It's basically the boss is unknown, but it's really not that big of a... Uh, it's not that big of a spoiler to reveal that, yes, this, this is, in fact, uh, Two-Face. And that is obviously going to become an element later on. And one of the things that I kind of like about this little opening sequence of the book is... Apart from how well written it is, how well drawn it is, the continuity back to the gauntlet, Two Faces limo, I guess. It reminds me of of the limo that Poison Ivy and and Bane uh, drove around in in uh, Batman and Robin, the movie Batman and Robin. It's the same color. It looks to me to be the same the same type of car, and. It just kind of makes me wonder, you know, was somebody watching Batman and Robin when they, when when this comic was being made? So, I mean, I don't really know. I don't know if anyone's ever, you know, talked in public about that. But if I had Javier Polito on this podcast, that's actually a question I'd have for him. I don't know if he'd remember after all this time, but anyway. So, the other thing to talk about is what a chilling version of of uh, Two Face this is. I mean, Two Face is not a major part of this of this issue. You know, his his prominence in the story doesn't really come until later on. But it's still you the the little glimpse of him that you do get, this is a very scary looking version of Two Face. So just keep that in mind as we go through this through this mini series here. So anyway, now from there, and because we're uh you know, moving along in the story here, this is on page six. Basically, you've got a sort of generic action sequences where some generic thugs rob a generic, what looks like, shipping yard. And then they get uh, intercepted by Batman and Robin. And I gotta say, <clears throat> it's interesting to me that, you know, Batman and Robin have such different tactics. I mean, you know, I, th- I think this was an element of uh, other things that I've said, you know, in the last two segments that Batman and Robin have just fundamentally different ways of tackling you know, the same type of, I guess, crime situations. Batman prefers to swoop in fast and quick and take everybody out as quickly as possible. And if he can scare the shit out of people a little bit in the process, he's going to do that. And so what we see is Batman, he swoops into action, takes down one of the thugs, and then, you know, veers off into the shadows, he goes into hiding, and then he takes people out from afar. That's not exactly the way that Robin does it, though. Of the three, uh, of the three uh, crooks here, Batman swoops into action and instantly takes out one of them. So that guy's down for the count. From the shadows, Batman uh, then takes out a second guy with a batarang. The third one says, hey, fuck this, and he decides you know, he's going to make a run for it. Robin intercepts him, and he sort of makes a show of himself by 
dancing around and dodging the bullets and everything. And then when he knows that the that the guy's emptied out his gun, then he goes on the offensive and takes him out. And Batman actually congratulates him on, on counting the uh, number of bullets that were fired and knowing when it was safe for him to go in and uh, take the guy out. So apart from showing that this, you know, that uh, Dick is really good at, I guess, strategy and tactics, you know, keeping count of bullets and things like that, his methods of dealing with criminals revolve around misdirection. And then once he's got the upper hand, once all of the, uh, you know, once all the, all, all the bullets are gone, then he moves into action. He's not about swooping out of the shadows and uh, basically using his environment as a weapon. You know, as a you know, using fear as a psychological weapon, he basically uses tactics to to get the upper hand. And I don't know why, but there's a fucking honesty to that. It it plays for me, you know. And anyway, so they get back to the Batcave, and you know they're they're basically taking turns congratulating each other. And once again, Bruce emphasizes that you know what. Dick Grayson's style is not only different from his own, Dick Grayson has things he can teach him. And that's not something that you see from Batman a whole lot. And anyway, so in the background, what we see is uh, the bat the Batmobile. It's just parked in the, I guess, the parking spot in the Batcave. And this is the very Dick Sprang Batmobile. It's got the giant bat head on the front of it and then the giant fucking fin on the back of it. And... I've always kind of had a sort of love-hate relationship with this Batmobile. I mean, on the one hand, I kind of, you know, we we live in a t- in a day and age now where I'm happy anytime the Batmobile isn't some kind of Chris Nolan inspired tank. So that much I'm okay with. But I'll be honest with you, I've always liked the Batmobile, the idea of I guess the concept of the Batmobile being a customized Lamborghini or a customized Corvette or a customized Maserati, or a customized Porsche, you know, just whatever it is. And this sort of, I don't even know what, this sort of 1950s throwback type of thing? I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I respect that Batmobile's role in Batman's history, because I think he had it. I think he drove that as his official Batmobile for something like 10 or 15 years or something like that, maybe longer. So I get that, but on the other hand... I don't know. I kind of like the idea of something that's a little bit more of like a customized muscle car, I guess is what I'm saying, or a customized exotic sports car, something like that. But anyway, whatever. So from there, we get this 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 little bit here where basically Alfred, he doesn't lecture Dick, but he does try to feel him out a little bit, you know, are you happy with your life here, you know, is this, is this the way that you thought things were going to go, and I think that's a, a kind of interesting question to ask Dick at this stage in his career, in as much as, you know, Zuko's dead, and at least on paper, Robin doesn't really have a reason to keep going, except he does, he, first off, he made a promise to Bruce, and second off, he's good at what he does. And it's an interesting thing to remember that Dick Grayson's reasons for doing what he does 
They're complementary to Bruce's mission, but ultimately Dick's reasons are different from Bruce's. You know, for Bruce, this is a single-minded obsession. And on some level, I can't quite shake the feeling that for Dick Grayson, I don't want to go so far as to say this is thrill-seeking, because it's not. But on, but I really can't divorce the idea of, on some level, Dick doing this somewhat out of fun and games. Does that make sense? He, I, I don't mean this in like the the adrenaline junkie sense of the word, but more that Dick Grayson does this because he's good at it, it's fun to do, and it's beneficial to society overall. Bruce does it because this is a single-minded crusade on upon which he's embarked. And their reasons for doing this are different from each other that you can see that that could eventually become a source of conflict between the two of them. But I get ahead of myself. Suffice it to say, this is the first real indication we get that Bruce and Dick have a similar mission, but they go about it, first of all, in different ways. Their strategies and their tactics, their methods, are not the same. But over and above all that stuff, their motivations are not the same. This is the first time we really get a taste of that. So, anyway. From there, we flip over to page 11. And we see Dick arriving at Bristol Middle School. Where... I'm going to try to find a way to phrase this in a way that doesn't make Bruce look bad. But Bruce kind of questions why Dick wants to go to a public school. And basically... Dick's attitude about it is that the girls here are just better. And on that basis, I suppose he's right. But, I mean, I don't know. I In this whole idea of public school versus private school, I don't know. I mean, I, I see advantages in both, but ultimately, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I kind of have to come down on Bruce's side here. I mean... You know, there are certain things that happen in public school that just don't happen in private school. Just because they have the ability to kick your ass out if you're doing things that they don't like. So, anyway, it's it's just a, it's an interesting little character moment here. So, anyway, um, then from there we start getting in, into a little bit of the Mad Hatter stuff. And to the best of my knowledge, this is a new this is a new idea for the Mad Hatter. You know, uh, I don't know that he's ever been portrayed as, shall we say, somebody who kidnaps children for sex trafficking purposes. And I got to be honest, I mean, I know that, you know, Batman's enemies, by definition, are not saints. But this is an element of the story that I just really was not all that, I don't know, all that comfortable with, I guess. I didn't really see the necessity of having one of Batman's established rogues gallery involved in something that's just this fucking depraved. I mean cuz this this is this is fucking sick, you know, and to me this just there's some kind of invisible line here, damned if I can tell you where it is, but there's some sort of an invisible line here that the Mad Hatter as a child kidnapper just crosses 
I don't know why. So, anyway. From there, we, we cut to, you know, Dick doing his thing in school. And, you know, I got to tell you, this is one of those things that I think the Silver Age kind of missed out on in as much as those comics were all about, you know, adventure and action and excitement and all that stuff. And in the majority of cases, character took a back seat to that sort of thing. And so you never really saw... I don't know, like Dick Grayson flirting with girls or, um, you know, going to class and, you know, things like that. And we get a decent amount of that here. You know, uh, Dick is basically screwing up a little bit in school, but he's also, you know, getting, shall we say, attention from one of the girls in his class. And I don't know. I mean, you know, Dick's at the age where he kind of starts looking around and noticing girls and they are noticing him. And I don't, that's, this is just a very easy thing to believe in, you know? So anyway, it just, I buy this is basically what I'm saying. So anyway, so then from there you get this little bit where Dick plays basketball. And then from there, Dick's girlfriend, uh, ends up getting kidnapped And then from there, year one as a miniseries is pretty much in full swing. And we see this action scene where, you know, uh, Batman and Robin are swooping through the city and they're just having the time of their lives. They meet up with uh, Commissioner Gordon on the roof of uh, police headquarters. And... This isn't exactly the first time that that uh, Dick has met Commissioner Gordon, but it's important to remember this is still early on in in the process, and it's important to remember that Gordon might not be completely on board with the idea of Robin, and so I mean, because he barely even makes eye contact with Robin. It's like he can't even bring himself to acknowledge the fact that yes, Batman has a has an a uh, a partner who's a minor, and I don't know. So then from there, Batman and Robin are on the case. These kidnapped children are now Batman's priority. So Batman and Robin storm up a, a pool hall, inflict some misery on, on, some, on some of the low lives there, and basically come up short. There's really nothing to be found there. A lot of these guys, they're criminals, yes, but they're also family men. And it's just not... They're just not going to go out and, and, and kidnap children. Yeah, they may be pieces of shit, but they're not going to go quite that far. Which, once again, puts the Mad Hatter in a very negative light. And speaking of that, we get this really fucking creepy scene at a Mad Hatter's hideout where he meets with the president of What's It, What's it Called Asia, where they review... It's basically all these kidnapped girls, but they're basically being uh, talked about and referred to as though they're inventory, and it's just fucking sick. But, uh, anyway. So, so, from there, we see uh, Dick get assigned to this case at school by Batman. You know, basically, poke around, poke around at the school, see what you can find out. Maybe there's something here that you can work with. And indeed there is. 
uh, Rob, uh, or I should say Dick, manages to uh, get a pretty good lead on one of the girls getting kidnapped from his school. Has to call Alfred, who brings the Robin outfit with him. And Robin, this is, this. I got to tell you, this next sequence here that we see starting on page 32, this is Robin the way that I kind of like seeing Robin done, right? Where he does a lot of reconnaissance, you know? He's not necessarily there to foil the bad guys and save the day. I mean, if he can, he'll do it. But as much as anything, he's there to gather intelligence and give Batman a little bit more to work with. And now he ends up getting ambushed because it's a comic and it's kind of boring if he doesn't do something here. So he ends up getting uh, discovered by one of the uh, kidnappers. And so he has no choice but to, you know, go on the offensive and, you know, defend himself. And then from there, his hand's been forced. He's got to uh, take action and and uh, make a move against um, President Lee. And the reason for that is because President Lee is on a boat, pretty sure he's going to be in international waters, and then after that, he's going to have pretty much gotten away scot-free. So this gives us a plausible reason why Robin would... Basically, why it is that he'd go into action knowing for a fact that Batman probably wouldn't approve of this. You know, him taking solo action like this. So, of course, he's going to get discovered. A firefight ensues. And before too long, you know, Robin has pretty much to save the day all by himself. And it's him up against the Mad Hatter. And he's really got no choice except to save the day all by himself. And again, this is a good reminder to us that as different as his methods might be from Batman, he was still trained by Batman. And he's going to be good at his job. He's confident, and end of the day, he may not have Batman's depth of experience. He's still, he still knows what he's doing. He's got a good head on his shoulders, and he's moving in the right direction here. And that's an important thing to remember as we begin page two, panel one, with Batman and Robin or page two, sorry, the second issue of um, of this mini-series. This is page one, panel two. You've got Batman and Robin embroiled in a car chase, basically. It looks like it's a three-way car chase between the uh, Killer Moth, some thugs that Killer Moth was tr supposed to do business with, and then Batman and Robin. So, as we get more into this, though... Uh, Let's see. Dick Grayson continues to prove his worth as Batman's aide by single-handedly defeating criminals like Killer Moth and Blockbuster. Meanwhile, Two-Face, who feels that Batman's to blame for his disfiguration, plans revenge against Batman by plotting to kill his sidekick. To carry out his plan, Two-Face kidnaps Judge Lawrence Watkins in order to lure the, di the dynamic du duo into his trap. When Captain Gordon meets with Batman and Robin to inform them of the kidnapping, he expresses concerns about Robin's young age and reminds Batman of the dangers of the mission. With the new realization, Batman orders Robin to sit out during the hunt for Two-Face. However, Robin secretly follows him during his search. Soon thereafter, Batman finds Two-Face in the act of kidnapping twin infants and tries to prevent their death. Although Robin shows up to help, the abduction of the infants turns out to be a trap, and both Batman and Robin are taken hostage. 
And then from there... Two-Face carries out his revenge by making Robin choose between Judge Watkins' life and Batman's life. While attempting to save the Judge and Batman from Two-Face, Robin is badly beaten. Bruce takes him to Dr. Leslie Tompkins for treatment and decides to end Dick's career as Robin. This causes Robin to run away from Wayne Manor. And, as I say, I mean, I think we're going to be coming back to talk about uh, two f not Two-Face. We're going to be talking about Two-Face quite a bit here. But the Killer Moth aspect of this story, we're going to be coming back to that in greater depth later on. But at least for right now, what we've got is Robin once again proving that he is good at his job. He's, I mean, he's not just a kid playing dress-up. He really is good at this. And that's an important thing to emphasize in this story because this is... This is basically the, I guess, a very, this is basically the first real challenge, I guess, that the Batman and Robin partnership have ever faced. It could be that, and obviously, I mean, we know that, the, that it doesn't last, but at least in the context of this story, it could be that Dick Grayson, his days as Robin, are they truly are finished. And... Of all characters, it's Two-Face who introduces all of this conflict uh, into the story. And speaking of Two-Face, we once again get a much better look at Two-Face uh, starting in this issue. And this is just a creepy, creepy, creepy looking version of Two-Face. He's got basically, you've got the normal Harvey Dent side of his face, but then he's also got this discolored... Batman the Animated Series style blue disfiguration on the other side of his face. And that's not the preferred way that I would like to see Two-Face drawn and colored. But this is, nevertheless, a very creepy and very menacing look for uh, Two-Face. So, anyway, from there, we get a little bit more of the same from the previous issue of, you know, Dick going to school and basically living a a relatively normal life on top of all of his duties as Robin. Then from there, we cut to a scene where Robin takes Blockbuster down single-handed. And again, it's a reminder that Dick is not helpless. He is good at what he does. He's good at this job. And that's an important thing to emphasize, you know, before we start getting into, I guess, the meat of the story, where Robin basically gets the shit beaten out of him by by Two-Face. And this is this is really not the first time that we've ever seen something like this. I mean, I think the first time that this uh, that I guess this event in in Robin's history was ever really discussed or hinted at it was back in uh, uh Robin number 0 uh published this was a, a part of the, I guess, the aftermath of Zero Hour. This was published, uh, the cover date at least, is October of 1994. And you've got Tim Drake and Robin hanging around shooting the bull together. <clears throat> and Dick recalls, he tells Robin parts of this story. But obviously there's, there are entire chunks of this story that Dick is leaving out in Robin number zero that he's 
that he's basically that that we're finally getting the, the you know the full story of here, and you could kind of view this as Dick telling Robin a a sort of sanitized version of this story, not just you know the aftermath of him being temporarily fired as Robin, but the nature of his injuries. I mean, in Robin number zero, what we see is uh, uh, Two Face beat the shit out of Dick with his bare hands. But that's not what we see here in Robin Year One, where Two-Face kicks the shit out of, out of uh, Robin. Well, a little bit with um, his uh, bare hands. He punches him, but then he works him over with a baseball bat. And I don't mean just, you know, once or twice. I mean, it looks like he gets smacked around at least six times, you know, with the baseball bat. And make no mistake about it, Two-Face would have beaten him to death if Batman hadn't freed himself from the trap and then kicked uh, Two-Face's ass. And then from there, we get the first real inkling of, I guess, the jeopardy, the risks that, that Batman and Robin take every night. And it was as though, I don't know, Batman, I guess, just never thought that it could ever come to this, that somehow... Somehow Robin was always going to be able to escape from something like this. Or Batman would always be there to protect him. And this is the first time that Batman finds out that, you know what? That isn't necessarily the case. <clears throat> and you don't need a much, uh, very much imagination to see that this incident puts the fear of God into Batman. But we'll come back to that in just a few moments. Uh, basically, I think you can summarize uh, the the beginnings of of the third issue and all of this. Robin's basically gotten the shit uh, beaten out of him, so Bruce takes him to Dr. Leslie Tompkins for treatment. And then from there, fires Dick as Robin, which inspires Robin to run away from Wayne Manor. While on the streets, Robin's enlisted by a martial artist named Shrike into a junior league of assassins. Shortly after Dick's recruitment into the league, Shrike's hired by a crime boss to murder Two-Face, who's recently escaped from jail. Meanwhile, Batman begins searching, f uh, uh, searching for... <clears throat> Excuse me, I just bit the shit out of my tongue here. Meanwhile, Batman begins searching for Two-Face, while Alfred continues trying to find Dick. While in the League of Assassins, Dick uses the name Freddie Lloyd in order to conceal his true identity. However, Shrike goes, grows suspicious of Freddie and orders the, the other League members not to trust him. And that's probably going to be a pretty good little stopping point here. At least for the moment. Um, issue 3. Basically, it starts off with Gordon interrogating Two-Face. And he's got the bloody baseball bat that Two-Face used to beat the shit out of Robin. And then from there, you, this is a moment that I think Gordon has probably always dreaded having to do. And that is call Batman in to dress him down and ask him just, What the fuck were you thinking? bringing a minor, a child with you, 
in these types of dangerous situations. And that... This is a very interesting conflict between Batman and Gordon in as much as Gordon asks Batman just, Hey, where's your partner? Batman can't even meet his eyes. He just looks away and says, I benched him for this one. Walken's death is on my head alone. And then Gordon loses his shit over this. He says, look, don't lie to me. This isn't Harvey Dent's blood that's on this baseball bat. And in this moment, what you realize is that Gordon truly believes that Robin's dead. And he actually threatens Batman. He says, look, if that kid's dead, everything between us changes. I'm coming for you. And Batman has to say that Robin has retired. And Jim, you have my word on that. And Gordon's answer is, that used to mean something. And then from there, we get a, uh, a, 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 this is a sort of dream on, Ro- on uh, Robin's part where he remembers everything that's happened to him. He sees uh, the man drowning. He sees Batman hanging. He sees Two-Face beating the shit out of him with a baseball bat. He sees Leslie Tompkins trying to save him, etc., etc. I mean, this has really taken a toll on Dick. And for the first time in this story, what you get is Dick... Yeah, he, he loves the idea of being Robin. But as much as anything, he's, he needs a surrogate father. Batman needs a partner, but he's in no position, really, to be a father. And this is, again, this is really, maybe, maybe the first of many times of Bruce and Dick just talking past each other. It's kind of implicit in, in this scene that what Dick needs and what Bruce needs are two very different things. And the other thing is, I think as much as anything, what what Dick needs is basically for someone to, I guess, to affirm him. He needs specifically Bruce to say that, you know what, you fucked up, that's true. I told you to stay out of it, you didn't. But you did what you thought was right. Yeah, you broke the rules, but you know what? It looks to me like you're paying the price for that already. And, you know, we, we need to find a way to move forward from this. That's what Dick needs to hear. But Bruce just can't bring himself to say that. Bruce is, first of all, pissed off that, you know, that Dick jeopardized the, uh, the rescue the way that he did. But second, he could have gotten killed, you know, and very nearly did. It was only because of Batman's ability to escape when he did that Dick is even still alive. And I can understand where Bruce is coming from on this. I mean, if we look at this strictly from the point of view of, uh, you know, the war on crime, Batman's mission, and all that stuff, you know, it's easy to see uh, Bruce's point of view. This is one of those things that kind of goes beyond the mission, the crusade, chains of command, and all that stuff. Right now, Dick needs somebody to believe in him. And all Bruce has 
is put downs and lectures. You know, Dick, you fucked up. You didn't listen. You, you disobeyed a direct order. An innocent man is dead and you were nearly killed, etc., etc. And it really takes Alfred's intervention uh, before Bruce finally lets up. But at this point, the damage is done. And this is just a really powerful moment. And it, again, goes to the goes to the fact that what what Bruce gets from his war on crime versus what Dick gets from it are two different things. They've they're different people. They've got different needs. They they have different motivations. They have different methods. And again what we're seeing is the differences between Bruce and Dick are really starting to become a source of conflict here. I mean yes, there is genuine affection between the two of them. There's just no, no, no two ways about it. But at the same time, you can't ignore the fact that Bruce and Dick are fundamentally different people. Now, excuse me while I take a drag off of my uh, e-cig here. Anyway, from there... We cut to a scene of Mr. Freeze in, uh, in uh, his hideout. And he's basically hanging around with, with, uh, with his thugs. And he's planning his, basically his next major crime. And something big is going to come out of this later on. But um, at least for right now, you know, what we have is a situation where more... It never stops in Gotham City. There's always another escaped supervillain. There's always another crime wave that's coming. There's always another kidnapping. There's always another bombing. You know, there's always shit going down in in Gotham City. The war goes on. And for the first time, Dick is, on the one hand, he's left out of it. But on the other hand, he sort of gets dragged right back into it because he's visiting Dr. Leslie Tompkins' uh, clinic when Two-Face and his thugs invade the place and basically steal all of their stores of, of, uh, of blood that they use for transfusions. And so, you know, Dick, he doesn't have all of his usual tools and his gear as Robin, but he still goes on the, goes on the, off, uh, the offensive here and tries to, I guess, shut this whole thing down and intercept Two-Face. Or, sorry, Mr. Freeze. Now, going back to Two-Face for a minute... Two-Face actually manages to escape from police custody. So he was arrested earlier in this issue, or between issues two and three, and now he's escaped. Meanwhile, back at, uh, two, uh, uh, back at Mr. Freeze's hideout, Dick locks all of Mr. Freeze's thugs up in a, uh, in a closet, and he's pretty much taking on Mr. Freeze all by himself, at which time Naturally, the uh, Mr. Freeze's thugs escape, and Mr. Freeze pursues Dick before Dick gets the literal drop on him. And then from there, Gordon gets the literal drop on Dick. And this is the first time that Gordon has seen Robin ever since he got the shit beaten out of him by Two-Face. And so, number one, this is a, just a nice little reinforcement that, yes, Robin is, in fact, alive. And number two, again, Dick is good at what he does. He's not an amateur. 
And so, anyway, Mr. Freeze gets arrested, and it comes to 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 Bruce's uh, official attention now. Yes, Dick truly is gone. He's run away from home, and he's basically living on the uh, on the streets. And this is about the time that Dick gets inner. Uh, he gets recruited basically into this sort of junior league of assassins. A different JLA, I suppose. And it's a good reminder to us that, once again, Dick is good at what he does. And the other side of that argument is there are less than savory applications to... Dick's talents, I guess. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be used on the side of the angels. And this is... I mean, I'll be honest with you. You, you know, you need to have conflict in, in, in stories and everything, but now we're getting into a, a sort of a, a facet of the story that I'm just really not all that nuts about. What I really wanted from this was, I guess, a Batman and Robin story. And we're not really getting that here. But, you know, whatevs. I mean, I, on the one hand... You know, no, this is not quite what I wanted. But on the other hand, I will not say a word against uh, Chuck Dixon and and uh, his writing. So anyway, to move on into uh, issue number four, though, uh, we've got Shrike, who's meeting with uh, Joe Manette in um, in in uh, in jail, basically threatening him is what it comes down to. And then from there, um, Shrike meets with. Uh, with uh, Anthony, that is to say, Joe's Joe Manette's uh, nephew, right? And we get a sort of interesting little insight into the way that the League of Assassins works. Anthony says, "You know, I hear stuff about you League of Assassins guys. You're no joke with all that ninja chop sake hoo ha. Am I right?" If you got a card, maybe I can drum something up for you when the old man goes and I'm and I'm in charge full time. And Shrike pretty much loses his shit over it and says, "And what if I find myself in the employ of one of your competitors? One encounter with a league and a lifetime is enough for most men, Anthony. Twice just begs fate." And Again, it's just it's a reminder to us that you know what the League of Assassins these guys aren't fucking around. So, anyway, uh, from there we see uh, Batman continuing his his uh, search for Two Face, and meanwhile, even though even though Alfred is obviously worried out of his mind about Dick Grayson. It's pretty clear that Bruce isn't making too big a priority out of finding Dick. And it's, I don't know, this is just an interesting character moment for, for Bruce in a not altogether positive way, I guess. But he's basically right now Two-Face is the priority. And I, on the one hand, I can kind of understand that. But on the other hand, I mean, we're talking about a child who, as far as Bruce knows, is stuck living on the streets. And so... I don't know. From there, we get um, we get a little bit of a glimpse of uh, Dick's training with the League of Assassins before they get sent out on assignment um, and over to a 
This is basically a test. They're supposed to break into a place without being seen, heard, caught, or anything. And then from there, they meet with Shrike, who says, okay, you guys have passed the test. You've gotten in here stealthily. Now find your way out. Then he sets off uh, the alarm in the place, and everybody makes a run for it, and... I don't know. This is just an interesting way of of uh, training these sort of junior level thieves, and uh, so from there we we cut to uh, Two Face's hideout, which is basically a uh, a mansion at 2020 Doubleday, which is a kind of interesting address for choo- uh, for Two Face to choose. Um, it's a private residence, and unfortunately, the residents are still there. So you get the idea that. Uh, I maybe I'm mis I'm just mis misreading Two Face's intentions in this scene, but it looks like his his idea is to dishonor the young lady who is sitting at the table sharing dinner with them. So I I really don't know what to think about that. So from there, the Junior League of Assassins basically intercept or not intercept they actually invade Two-Face's hideout their objective is to kill Two-Face Dick ends up getting the drop on Two-Face but he just can't he can't bring himself when he ha- when he has his chance he can't bring himself to kill Two-Face in spite of everything that Two-Face has done to him and just in general what a piece of shit Two-Face is he just can't he can't bring himself to do it. And so at that moment, the cops show up and they arrest Two-Face. And at least on the surface, all seems well. Meanwhile, back in the Batcave, Dick's basically let himself in, whereupon he bumps into Alfred. And Dick says that, don't get used to this. He's not going to stick around. He just needed to leave Bruce a note. And then he he makes his way out. And so, from there, we cut to uh, uh, Joe, uh, Joe Manette <clears throat> getting murdered by uh, one of, one of uh, uh, Two-Face's uh, thugs inside the prison. From there, we get Dick being outed as, a, uh, as an imposter at the, uh, by Shrike at the junior... League of Assassins. Meanwhile, from there, Two-Face is once again on the rampage, and he's looking for... He's basically looking for the Junior League of Assassins. It's now Two-Face versus the Junior League of Assassins. Batman interrupts uh, Shrike beating the shit out of Dick, and... Shrike really does get the drop on on Batman, oddly enough. I mean, we all have this vision of Batman as being sort of unbeatable, but Shrike does nevertheless manage to get uh, to get the upper hand here. And who's to say what might have happened? Except Two Face and his thug uh, show uh, they both show up, and um, they take Shrike out. And then it's really up to it's really up to Batman at this point to take Two Face down. And 
this leads to reconciliation, obviously, between Bruce and Dick. And the fact is, you know, I mean, it, it, it's kind of mechanical in that we all knew that this was going to happen in the story. But um, in any case, like, I guess the actual, like, official story summary for all of this is... During his involvement with the group, Dick serves as an unofficial spy for Batman by sending letters containing information about the Junior League of Assassin and Two-Face, but refuses to return home out of guilt. After returning to the League's hideout, Shrike demands the truth about Freddy's identity, and meanwhile, Two-Face learns of Shrike's plans, hunts him down, and tracks him to his hideout. At the same time, Batman finds Dick. The two take down Shrike, but then, but then Two-Face escapes. Afterwards... Batman allows Dick to be Robin again as long as he agrees to follow Batman's orders. The team later captures Two-Face, and the arc ends with Robin's first encounter with Barbara Gordon, who's now under Captain Gordon's care. And so, anyway, to get back into my analysis, though, you've got, you've got Bruce and Batman in the Batcave, and basically Bruce elicits a promise from Dick. You've got the same conditions that you now as you had before you've got to follow my orders you've got to be a good soldier you swore an oath and if you put that costume on you'll honor those words to the letter and never question my orders again even if it means watching me die without hesitation so from there they swoop back into action like i said in the summary they swoop back into action and they have this sort of meeting on the roof of police headquarters with Gordon. And this is one of those moments that sort of gets swept under the rug. I mean, Gordon was very opposed to even the concept of Batman having a, a child as a partner. But nevertheless, here it is. So then from there, Robin has a very brief meeting with uh, Barbara Gordon, at which time Jim Gordon turns over his shoulder and says, not on your life, boy wonder. So after that, that this is really uh, the beginning of the uh, Batman and Robin team. It's now in full swing. And I don't know. I mean, I really enjoy this story. I think it does more right than it does wrong. But that sort of middle section, I just think it kind of goes on to, I mean, look, Maybe it's just that I wanted something from this story that Chuck Dixon didn't want it to be, but I was looking for this to be more of a Batman and Robin type of team-up story, and we don't get as much of that as I would have liked. So, anyway. As I say, uh, Robin, annual number four, The Gauntlet, and then the Robin Year One miniseries, these are basically my headcanon. This is Dick Grayson's first year on the job. This is how he uh, first became Bruce Wayne's ward, how he trained to be Robin, and then his first year as Robin. This is, these three stories pretty much tell you what happened during Robin's, that is to say Dick Grayson's, first year on the job. And, again, I mean, I'm not trying to copy too much of uh, Emily Middleton's ideas here, but she has this idea that I've never heard anybody quite phrase it the way that she did in that you have your sort of headcanon. You know, you have your continuity of how these characters and their stories play out, right? 
And sometimes your headcanon is not just in your head, it's actually on paper, as it is here. But sometimes your headcanon is stuff that isn't entirely in continuity, or maybe it's just in your imagination, or something like that. For me, Robin Annual Number 4, even though it's not really in continuity and hasn't been since uh, uh, Dark Victory was published, nevertheless, Robin Annual Number 4 is the story of how Dick Grayson became, uh, became Bruce Wayne's ward. So it's out of continuity at this point, but that's still my continuity. That's my headcanon. Robin, annual number four, the gauntlet, and Robin year one are how Dick and Bruce ever became a team with one another. And I really enjoy these stories. I wasn't really expecting to find all of this when I started that what, what I was talking about in the uh, the first segment, that sort of, that Batman kick that I found myself on, you know, ages ago. This was something that I wasn't expecting to find, but which I nevertheless found. And so, anyway, really enjoy these issues. Love the art, especially in Robin Year One, Javier Polito. This is, like I said, it's very Darwin Cook, but not in a Darwin Cook rip-off type of way. It's just, the, the two styles seem very similar to me, but... I'm not saying that one is a copycat of the other. I'm just saying that I, I see stylistic similarities. And of course, it's Chuck Dixon on on Robin, which is already sort of his forte to begin with. He's also writing specifically Dick Grayson, which, again, that was always his forte. And there's just little or nothing about this story that doesn't ring true to me. And at the same time that it's doing all of this, it also, especially Robin Year One, the miniseries, it sort of amplifies on Robin number zero, which was you know, from the Tim Drake series, Robin number zero, you know, stories and whatnot that uh, Dick Grayson told Tim Drake. And at the same time, I guess how Dick had sanitized that for for Tim for uh, Tim's consum- uh, consumption. You know, he wasn't giving him the full nitty gritty of the story. He was basically giving him the flavor of what happened, but he didn't—he didn't go into you know the blood and guts of you know everything that happened in Robin Year One, and uh, I think that's that was a very wise decision for Dick Grayson to make in the story, and I think that was a very wise decision for Chuck Dixon to make with writing the script for Robin Number Zero. So anyway, all around, really love these issues, and I just—I I cannot say enough positive things about them. If you guys have never read. Robin, Annual Number 4, The Gauntlet, and then Robin Year 1, you're doing yourselves a disservice. You really need to track these stories down and, uh, and, and read them, especially as I don't think that they go for all that much on the back issue market. It sh- they should be relatively easy and relatively cheap to, to find. So anyway, so that's that. That's pretty much it for this week. As to next week, I'm going to be talking about Batgirl Year One. So uh, come back for that. As to right now, I think that's pretty much it for me. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
name is Rebecca Johnson. And I'm Carly Lane. And we are two of the hosts of Supergirl Radio, a podcast dedicated to the CW Supergirl series and the character of Kara Zor-El. We wanted to let you know about the DCTV podcast fundraiser benefiting the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. All of the shows in the DCTV podcast network will be broadcasting live on June 11th, 2016, starting at 2 p.m. Eastern. We'll have discussions about Arrow, The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, Gotham, and of course, Supergirl. While also raising money to support the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation spinal cord and epidural stimulation research. If you donate, you'll automatically be entered into a raffle to win autographs and comics. To find out more information about our event, head over to dctvpodcast.com slash fundraiser to find out how to donate and where to listen. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story. Monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com Hello, friend. This is Christopher Woolnut with a very important message for you. Beware... Of monsters. Yes, friend, beware of monsters. International best-selling author Jeremy Robinson, along with BewareOfMonsters.com, feel this message is so important, they have commissioned me to start this podcast to get the word out. Please, beware of monsters. Each week, the Beware of Monsters podcast will talk to experts and authors about the monsters from film literature from comic books video games from any place we find them lurking beware of monsters you can find more information by searching beware of monsters in itunes your podcatcher program or the rss feed on bewareofmonsters.com this podcast is in its infancy but you can join us now and watch it grow like a mad experiment in a secret lab in an underground bunker somewhere in New England as it gets out of control, consuming all around it in its mad quest to control the world. Friend, beware of monsters. Each week, presented by Jeremy Robinson and BewareOfMonsters.com. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. 
Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.